Well, this morning, uh, I want to start off with a little pop quiz, uh, which is everybody's favorite memory from school, right? But here's the good news about this pop quiz. There are multiple right answers, okay? So your chances of getting a passing grade are really high, and for some of you, that may be the first time ever, right? So multiple options that are uh, a right answer today. And so uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a little, a little line graph up here on the screen, and I want you to look at that, and I want you to take a guess. What does that line graph represent? What does that line graph represent? Now, for the sake of accountability, so that no of you are the golfer who got the hole-in-one but no one was around, right? Uh, turn and tell your neighbor whatever it is you think that line graph represents. What do you think that is? And so you take a guess. Tell your neighbor for the sake of accountability, all right? So here's, here's good news again. A few right answers. So uh, if you guess that this line graph represents most people's uh, performance of their 401k the last year, you're correct, <laughs> right? Some of you laughing, some of you crying out there, right? So that could be an answer. If you uh, guess that this graph represents the 2023 attendance patterns of the local Planet Fitness, you also are correct, <laughs> right? But if you guess that that graph uh, represents the uh, average attendance patterns of a local church, you also are correct. Now, here's why I say that, all right? Uh, in years where the weather is mild in Ohio in January and February, uh, those end up being the two months where the highest average attendance across our campuses are in the first two months. So what happens is I'm starting out the new year. I'll be more consistent in church. I've got some spiritual goals and ambitions and resolutions. But eventually, like most New Year's resolutions, our uh, faithful church attendance often gives way the same pattern of the local YMCA. Now, that line graph's a little bit exaggerated when it comes to church attendance. Uh, for most churches, the attendance patterns are very connected to seasons and sports and school schedules, but uh, those are the uh, stats for us for several years now. If the weather's mild in January and February, attendance is really high, and then it uh, starts to creep off just a little bit throughout the year. But here's the reality. When it comes to uh, New Year's resolutions, the statistics are not encouraging. I don't know if you know that uh, or not. Here's some stats when it comes to resolutions in general. Uh, less than 10%, one study said 9%, of people actually keep the resolutions for an entire year. Uh, so less than 10%, so it's about a 90% failure rate when it comes to New Year's resolutions. But here's how quickly the drop-off is, kind of like that line graph. After one month, about one-third of all people abandon their New Year's resolution. So <laughs> come, come February, people just run out of steam. And by the end of February, the failure rate is 80% when it comes to New Year's resolutions. Now, when it comes to exercise, I understand that. You know why? Because it hurts. Amen? Uh, I used to, therefore, I thought I'm going to be a runner, and my brother ran some marathons, and, and he said, hey, you just got to get in a rhythm, and after a while, you, you begin to experience what's called the runner's high. Well, I thought, I'm just going to push through, and what I come to, to find out is that's actually better named the runner's lie, all right? When your lungs feel like they're on the outside of your body, that's not good. So I get it when it comes to that. What's the point of exercising if you're only going half speed uh, kind of an all-or-nothing uh, mentality. Listen, if you have full mobility after a few days of working out, have you even worked out? The answer is no, you haven't. I get it when it comes to diet, right? I'm going to do better this year when it comes to diet, but anyone that thinks broccoli tastes better than Big Macs, you're not welcome here, okay? 
going to the gym in the winter when it gets dark, shortly after lunch. I understand. That's discouraging. So I get the drop-off rate when it comes to fitness resolutions and goals, but how do we reconcile that when it comes to the church? It's warm inside. Most people are nice. The seats are comfortable. It's only a little over an hour a week. There's free coffee. The pastor is both wise and easy on the eyes, right? Like, I don't, how do we reconcile all of that together? Well, here's, here's why, and this is not a mystery. This little phrase we've said multiple times over the years uh, is this. People do what they do because their heart wants what it wants, and their heart wants what it wants because they believe what they believe. We've said that a hundred times over the years, and so if you don't, haven't written that down yet or memorized that, let me repeat that for you. People do what they do, their behavior, because their heart wants what it wants, their affections, because they believe what they believe. And whether we like to admit it or not, uh, our behaviors regarding church attendance actually reveal our actual beliefs regarding the centrality of the local church in God's kingdom uh, agenda. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to teach a short, uh, kind of a mini-series, if you will, uh, titled From Resolutions to Convictions. From Resolutions to Convictions. Uh, and if there's ever a time when deep convictions regarding the centrality of the local church are needed, it is now. Let me give you a couple statistics. Pre-pandemic in very large church, when they surveyed large churches, the average person attended in a large church uh, about 1.5 times a month. That's it. Uh, on the other side of the pandemic, most larger churches are averaging between 60 and 75% of their pre-pandemic attendance. We're doing way better than that. I'm grateful to God for that. But, but listen to the most alarming statistic. Christian researcher George Barna reports this. This is a recent uh, report. He said this. On the other side of the pandemic, one out of three active church attenders pre-pandemic have stopped going to church. One out of three have stopped going to church. Now, contrast all those statistics I just gave you with previous generations where some of you grew up with a drug problem. Every time the doors are open, your folks drug you to church, right? And now here we are, and so is the church even relevant? Is online church a viable option? How do we reconcile with all these things? So we're just going to take two weeks and kind of go back to the basics uh, to strengthen our convictions regarding uh, the local church so that our spiritual ambitions don't go by the wayside like Planet Fitness often uh, we see. So the gospel reorients uh, our beliefs and affections long before it changes our behaviors. And so uh, we're going to start off today uh, where the church starts in Acts chapter 2. So if you want to turn your Bible, your phone, your tablet, whatever you're using in Acts chapter 2 uh, this morning, kind of a survey of, of that chapter this morning. Resolutions, as evidenced by their failure rate, are often uh, aspirational values. They're not actual values. And that's not unique to Christian circles. All kinds of people make all kinds of goals. But, but in Christian circles, uh, we don't often talk about resolutions. We talk about convictions. Uh, convictions are strong persuasions or beliefs about the truth. But, but even when we talk about convictions, there's kind of a sliding scale of what that might mean or what someone might be talking about. Let me just kind of give you some categories from stronger conviction to lesser conviction. So first off, you got biblical convictions. These are doctrines held to be right or true by the church throughout the centuries. You remove any of these away from the teaching of the church, you no longer have historic Orthodox Christianity, teachings on the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection, all those kind of cardinal doctrines. So those are biblical convictions. Uh, the second are our personal convictions. 
Uh, these would be based on scriptural truth and, and how we apply those truths in our individual lives. Uh, personal convictions are the boundaries with which I'm living out my relationship with Jesus. And sometimes you and I have differing personal convictions on certain things, and that's okay. Uh, the third category is uh, just biblical beliefs or, or, or doctrines. These are things that can be demonstrated in Scripture, but they're not essential, and so there's room for providing differing theological positions. So, so again, your view on the end times or your view on the role of women in the church or all these kind of issues, those are biblical beliefs with not core tier one theological convictions. And then the least of all these is what we would call personal preferences. These are things that relate to convenience or comfort or, again, just matters of personal taste when it comes to the church. Here's some examples. Some of you like contemporary music in church. Some of you like uh, traditional music in church. Hopefully, by the grace of God, none of you like bluegrass. Amen? It's the devil's music. I just want you to write that down. And I think what's happened over the years is this. Is that the centrality of the local church has moved from a biblical conviction as central to the kingdom agenda of God down into a preference for a lot of people who profess the name of Jesus Christ. And any teaching or counsel that would speak to the contrary that the church is central to the mission of God is now pushed back against and defined as legalistic or judgmental in that. So this morning, I want to do a little survey of Acts chapter 2, and I know some of you are Getting nervous because it's taking a while to get to the text, but this is a two-part sermon, and we're just going to teach the first conviction this morning, all right? So let not your hearts be troubled. Acts chapter 2, let's start off in verse 1 and kind of a survey down through your chapter 2. So Acts 2 verse 1 says this, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and Divided tongues of fire, King James says cloven tongues of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now let me just stop here. This is the outpouring of the promised Spirit in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. That God promised His Spirit would come upon them and empower them. So they would take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So this is the fulfillment of that promise from Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And, and here's the cliff notes on how this incredible event called Pentecost was interpreted by the outsiders who were not a part of the church. Their interpretation was basically this. Here's the cliff notes. These dudes are drunk. Look it up, all right? That, that was what they concluded. Surely these guys have been hitting the communion wine a little early. They, they couldn't explain what's going on, this speaking and what was going on here, this, what was happening. And so, and then after that, in verses uh, 14 through 36, Peter gets up and preaches what, what pastors call a home run. I mean, he crushes it out of there, all right? And it is far from seeker sensitive. Old Pete is breathing straight gospel fire in his sermon. In, 14 through 36, all right? So let's pick back up. That's what's happening here. Pick back up in verse 37. Verse 37 says, and when they heard this, Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let me just stop right here. This is the birth of the New Testament church. This is the fulfillment or the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. Remember he said, uh, you're Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the beginning of that fulfillment here. This is a transitional moment in the economy of God. Here's why. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit of God would baptize people, which means it would come upon them and empower them for works of service. That's why Moses prayed in Exodus chapter 32, God, take not your spirit from me. And at this point, though, Jesus promised, hey, there's one coming greater than I, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And at this point in time, the Spirit of God began to indwell people, no longer come upon people, but they become indwelt by the Spirit that Jesus had promised at his ascension. Now... If this were the total plan and program of God, that people would get saved and then just wait until he comes back, that would be the end of the story. Mission accomplished. But the mission was just getting started. And the early disciples knew that as evidenced by this. And here's what I want to teach on today. They began to reorganize their entire lives around this new work God was doing called the church. Look down at 42 through the end through 47. Verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they're selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now let me just give you a a brief overview of of redemptive history so that you can see that that the church, the, the gathered saints together, was God's plan all along. It was not some plan B that that the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah and so God's wringing his hands and going oh no what am I going to do now and he came up with a plan B listen Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 says this that God has uh, used the church the fellowship of believers to display his glory that was his plan Ephesians 1 says before the foundation of the world and so let me just walk you through a 30 second timeline of redemptive history scene one is creation god creating man in his image genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 but that didn't last long because scene 2 we find in genesis chapter 3 we have the fall where sin entered the world through adam or what most theologians call when the women blew it amen no <laughs> the bible actually says in romans chapter 5 verse 8 that the sin we inherit comes down from adam not from eve god gave the command to him And he stood by silently in that. So scene two, we we see the fall enters the world. In scene three, God had a desire to dwell as covenant people. And that fellowship in the garden gets interrupted. So God begins to form a nation called Israel. And God dwells among his people. And the 
tabernacle and the temple. And so we see that God's chosen people is the nation of Israel. But it didn't take long for them to say, we want to chase after other things. And so then in scene four, we're introduced to the public ministry of Jesus. And while it was a flawless performance, it only lasted for a few years until his crucifixion and ascension. And it leads up to scene five, the church, which is where we currently find ourselves in redemptive history. And scene six will be eternity. New heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem, Revelation 21 and 22. And here's the overarching storyline of all of that redemptive history is this, is that God has a desire to dwell among his covenant people. That was the beginning in creation when God fellowshiped with them in the garden. That's what's restored. Revelation talks about at the end of Revelation that God will be with them and they will be his people. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, listen, that's the plan of God for your life, that he would dwell with you through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so scene five, the church that we're living out, begins here in Acts 2 at Pentecost. It is lived out by us. And it will culminate with the triumphant return of Jesus with his church. Praise God. And what we see from Acts chapter 2 and studying throughout the New Testament is conviction number one regarding the church, which is this. The church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. The local church is God's plan A to redeem the world, the nations, to himself. And there is no plan B. Now, I'm going to let you in a little secret. More than once over the last 21 years of pastoring, I've thought to myself, Lord, there has to be a more efficient way, right? Did you know this, that sometimes people in church act a fool? Did you know that? Sometimes the, the shepherd gets a little hungry for lamb chops, if you know what I'm talking about, all right? As I've watched this cultural moment uh, play out and sometimes as Christians if we're honest how we have engaged ourselves if we're honest this morning uh, we've been just as politically divisive we've been just as snarky and unloving online we've been just as guilty in the culture wars where we no longer see people who are far from God uh, as the mission field to be loved we now treat them as the enemy to be destroyed and Christians my fear is that have concluded that that the more people who don't like them, the more faithful to the truth they're becoming. Now, contrast that with the early church. And this culture moment, all this anger going on, even in Christians, mad at culture, mad at people who don't agree with our values, who don't even know Jesus. Now, contrast that. Go back to Acts 2 and look at 40, verse 46. What describes the heart of them? Angry? Angry at Rome? No, what's it say? It says they had glad and generous hearts. And the overflow of that, look at verse 47, says they had favor with all the people. In other words, there were people who said, hey, we don't love your Jesus, but we actually like you. That's how we know we're getting it right. When people who don't love Jesus still like us as followers of Jesus Christ, that's how we know we're getting it right. And so what happens when we forget that, what happens is we end up in mission drift. Yelling at the culture, expecting, trying to bring about more reform in culture apart from gospel proclamation, just the opposite. What we see in the early church, it says this, they were laser focused. 
That this new thing called the church, the new work that God was doing in them and through them began to consume their daily activities. They began to reorient their lives around the church and the mission of the church. In Acts chapter 3, the church goes out and it literally changes the world. And I want you to think about this. Most of the early converts to Christianity were poor Jewish people. And here's what that means. They had no money and no political clout. But yet if you keep reading uh, in the book of Acts, uh, in chapter 17, verse 6, describing those poor Jewish converts with no money and no political clout, Acts 17, 6 says this to them, these are they who turn the world upside down. And how do we reconcile that with American Christianity? We have tremendous financial resources. Listen, we have tremendous political clout. Our voting bloc can often turn the tide of elections. That's how much political clout we have. Yet despite all those resources and, and influence, America is now, listen to this, the third largest block of unchurched people in the world behind India and China. And the remedy for that, when the church comes back to the place where it has influence in culture, the remedy for that is not coming through the White House. It's going to start with God's house. Every great revival in history traces back with God getting hold of the church on the inside, not unbelievers on the outside. One of my favorite things to do is to read the history of great revivals. The Welsh Revival, the First Awakening, the Great Awakening, all these movements of God always start back, not with unbelievers getting converted, that's the overflow, not with society becoming more moral, although that is the overflow of genuine God-sent revival. It always starts with the house of God internally, God doing a work in there. Now, if you want to see the church become a powerful witness in the culture, once again, like it was here, would you just say amen? You bunch of Presbyterians. Let's try that one more time with Pentecostal power. If you want to see the church gain influence in the culture again, the count of three, would you just one time, again, Pentecostal power, would you shout out amen? One, two, three. Amen. That's not bad, not bad. Then how does that happen? Go back to the roots where people with no money and no power literally change the world for all of history. And look in the text, and the very first you see descriptor of the church, right after 3,000 people were saved at the end of Peter's sermon, the first descriptor, look at verse 42. What does it describe this new thing called the church and the people that made up the church? Verse 42 says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. They've got no money. They've got no political clout. But yet, they have the one thing that actually matters, devotion. Devotion to the apostles' teaching that Jesus lived and died and for the sins of the whole world and rose again and is coming back for his church. But that commitment didn't just stop to teaching. No, what's it say? It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, number one, and to the fellowship. Let me, let me paraphrase that. They devoted themselves to biblical teaching and, here it is, each other. Each other. You know what you call it when you're 
more devoted to the teacher than you are to the people around you, that's the fan club. You know what you call it when you're more devoted to the people around you than you are the person in front of you? That's a church. That's a church. That's why we don't offer online church. It's content without community. The devotion to be a part of the church is both teaching and fellowship to each other. The word fellowship, it's not just potlucks, all right? Although I'm a fan, all right, depending on who's cooking and what it is. I just want to put that out there. I can't prove this. We were down in western Kentucky one time. We were at a potluck. There was crock pots on the, on the wall up there. And I, I just, I don't want to say this out loud, but I just want to share this uh, my heart. There was a raccoon tail coming out of one of those lids. I just, I don't know what to do with that. That's a prayer request. I don't know. The word fellowship in the Greek is the word koinonia. And what it literally means in the original language is sharing in the Lord. That they're sharing their lives with each other and sharing what Christ is doing in their lives. Sharing in the Lord is what koinonia or fellowship actually means. And they're committed to teaching, sound instruction, the apostles' doctrine, and to sharing in the Lord with each other. They were, verse 42 says, deeply devoted, not to either or, but both and. Now, I realize I'm preaching to the choir a little bit because you're here at church, Right? But here's why I want us to deepen our convictions around the centrality of the local church as part of God's kingdom agenda. Here's why. It's because not a person in this room, me included, is so spiritual that we don't have the potential to get sinful or discouraged and drop out of church. I've watched for years, I don't don't even understand it, for years I've watched people go through hard and discouraging times and, and walk away from the church instead of leaning into the church. I don't even understand what's happening, but I've watched it. And none of us are so spiritual that we're, that we're above that. And because that's true, if you don't have a deep theology about the centrality of the, of the church as your foundation, then listen, when trials come, if they're long enough and if they're hard enough, you're in a dangerous place spiritually. But not only that, our deep theological convictions about the church are important, not just for your own spiritual journey. They're important if you're going to live on mission. Here's why. As you invite people to church to share in this shared life in the Lord together called the church, you're doing so in a cultural moment where lots of people are spiritual but see no use for the church. Matter of fact, some people would argue that spirituality is best found outside the church. You ever anybody say like, hey, I'm, I'm totally, I'm cool with Jesus, I'm, I'm just down on the church. Right? Like, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I'm just, I'm not for organized religion. Here's the problem with that. Jesus was a big fan of organized religion. It's called the church. This past week, uh, if you're watching it, surely if you weren't, you've seen it now play out in the media. We witnessed a tragedy there in Monday Night Football. Player goes down, cardiac arrest, and praise God, he's doing better. Uh, so, so, but here's what I want you to do. You know the response of that? I mean, all kinds of people praying everywhere. You know what that means? Don't be deceived into thinking that people aren't interested in spiritual things. But they often do not see the church as part of that equation, or worse yet, some of them see the church as the barrier to spiritual things. And so when we're inviting people into the fellowship of the church to to share in the Lord together with us, you are going to encounter people say, hey, I'm, I'm good with Jesus, I'm just down on his 
church. You need to have a solid theology that says, hey, Christ shed his blood for the church, Acts 20, 28. Christ is working among the church, Acts chapter 3 and beyond. And Christ, praise God, is coming back with his church, for his church, to redeem the world to himself. Jesus loves the church. When Ephesians chapter 5 describes the bride of Christ, the church, the saints, describes it as the bride of Christ in those intimate terms of Jesus' union with his church. Do you you know what that means theologically? Here's what that means. When someone says, hey, I love Jesus, I don't like the church, that's the equivalent of you telling someone, I really like you, but I hate your wife, right? That's what he's saying. When you study the movement of the early church, and no money, and no political influence, we study the book of Acts, the one thing they had was prayer. The church was birthed in a prayer meeting. The church has continued through prayer. The church prevailed through prayer. If there's anything they did have was a deep commitment to prayer in the early church, in the book of Acts. Well, guess what? The word devoted here in verse 42 in the original language, it's the same Greek word used in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, when it says, they devoted themselves to prayer. Their commitment to prayer, which no one doubts or debates, was the same word devotion to that as it was to in verse 42 as to the apostles teaching and to each other. To be devoted is to continue steadfastly or remain constant. Basically, here's what devoting is. It's the opposite of dabbling. To dabble is to be occasional, infrequent, or irregular. And church, I would argue if we want to see a culture-transforming revival, uh, dabbling, here's the Greek word, ain't going to cut it. Be more concerned with your child's athletic or academic development than you are their spiritual development is not going to cut it. Revivals in church history are not traced back to dabblers in the Lord work, but to those who were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, and to each other. Now, why is it that people dabble in the church instead of devoting their lives to the church when that's the example of the early church in the very first verse when the church is birthed? Well, it's not a mystery. Because we do what we do, because our heart wants what it wants, because we believe what we believe. And what American Christianity behavior regarding the church, the centrality of the church, reveals is that too many Christians don't really believe in their heart of hearts that the church is essential to God's kingdom agenda. They don't really believe that the church is plan A and there is no plan B. Dabbling in church reveals we really do not believe that deep devotion to the apostles' teaching and to each other is essential in the life of a Christian. Now, raise your hand if you came to church because you want to you want to learn something. Anybody out there, right? Most of you, some of you are sleeping. It's the sugar from donuts. The word ekklesia is the Greek word translated church in your English Bible. That word ekklesia is used 114 times in the New Testament. In those 114 times, the word ekklesia is used in four different ways. It can represent the body of Christ worldwide. Everybody who's ever been saved from the all of eternity. It's the universal church. Some call it the invisible church. And by the way, when people say, I'm high on Jesus, but not on the church, what they mean is, I'm totally good with being a part of the universal church, all who've ever been saved, but not a local church. You know why? Because that offers all the benefits and none of the tangible accountability. But the Bible does speak about, about five times, 
The local or universal church, all those who've ever been saved, we see it in Matthew 16, Ephesians 1, 1 Timothy 3, and some other places. That's one instance of how the church is used. Secondly, it refers to God's people in a given region. We see that in Acts chapter 9. It's a local geographical expression of the universal church. The third way, uh, it's used to signify in the New Testament an assembly of worship of the Lord's people. We see that in 1 Corinthians 14. It's a local Geographical. The most common usage, fourth wave, is a description of a local congregation of Christians. 1 Corinthians 1, Revelation 1, literally almost a hundred other places. All the New Testament epistles were written to actual local geographically defined uh, churches, not just believers and generals all over the world. And so the word ecclesia, where we get our English word church, 114 times, and literally over 95% of the time, the instruction, the admonition, the encouragement is to a local group of believers covenanting together to carry out the Lord's work, to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, and to each other. And the Lord intends it to be a visible witness for those who cannot see the invisible church. And every time that we gather on the Lord's Day, what we're proclaiming to the world who's watching is this, is that Christ is risen. The local gathering of the church is a testimony to the world who cannot see the invisible church that the church is made tangible, celebrating that Christ is risen. The word ecclesia literally means a called out assembly. Called out to value things distinctly that the world does not value and an assembly, a regularly gathering together called the church. And I would argue this, in a world filled with superficial online surface relationships, the one thing the church still has is the gathering together of the saints. And when we say, hey, in this world of, of overscheduling and online relationships, when we gather together and say, hey, this is so important, I'm willing to reorient my life around this, it is a witness to the world. It is a countercultural thing to gather every single Sunday, devote yourselves to, to the teaching and to each other. And why would we do that? Because Christ has purchased the church with his own blood. That's why. And the mission of the gospel is to give to the church. And I would also argue that in the world filled with division that we have going on, a group of Christians who are different in race and politics and preferences and socioeconomic levels experiencing supernatural unity due to a common salvation, a common savior, and a common mission is not only the pattern of the church from day one, it is a witness to the world in its extreme polarization. The fact that you would devote yourselves to, to each other, to someone else in the room who disagrees with you on lots of things, is an incredible witness in the culture that we're living in. People are going to ask you, why, why, would you, why would you give your life to that person? You don't have anything in common. You disagree about politics. You have different backgrounds. That person's weird. There's some weird people in here this morning. I don't know if you know, if you know that. You say, oh, it's because we were purchased with a common salvation. We have a common love for Jesus, and we're on mission together to make his name famous together. That's why. That supernatural unity is a witness to the world in the moment that we're living in. All right, so we're almost done. Look at verse 44 and verse 46 again. As we read these together, I want you to do so with a backdrop of our current cultural climate of divisiveness and the rugged 
individualism of American identity. All right? So those two things in the background as we leave this. Listen to this. I want you to listen to how devoted they were to each other. Starting in verse 44. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. They were sensitive to the needs around them. They willing to sacrifice to that. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. You know, in American Christianity, we talk about personal salvation a lot, and I understand the teaching of that, but you know this, when you actually study the New Testament, the Bible talks more about our corporate identity with other believers than it does about our individual salvation. While the book of Acts ends in chapter 28, the mission of the church continues with us and culminates with the return of King Jesus. And between now and then, you want to see a move of God in culture? Dabbling isn't going to cut it. A ragtag group of believers. And no money, they had no power. But through a deep devotion to the apostles' teaching and to each other, they're the reason you're sitting here this morning. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, says, Christ shed his blood for the church. And here's my conviction. If Jesus died for the church, then devoting my life to it is not too much to ask. So here's my New Year's challenge. Let's start off 2023 with deep convictions, not better resolutions. Would you bow your head this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I just want to ask two questions. The first one is the most important one. Are you a part of Christ's church? Have you come to the place in your life where compared to Jesus you had no other option but to acknowledge or confess your sins and admit that those sins have separated you from God and you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for your sins was buried and rose the third day and you received him by faith for the forgiveness of your sins. Have you been born again? Have you been saved? If the answer is no or I'm not sure, then right now, right where you're seated, by faith, you can pray and receive Jesus Christ. Confess your sins, express a heartfelt desire to turn from them or repent, and receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins because God wants to dwell with his covenant people. And that includes you if you'll receive Jesus. That's God's plan for your life in this new year. For everyone else in the room who's already a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you to pray this simple but important prayer. Would you say, Lord, deepen my convictions about the essential thing called the church. God, in 2023, help me be more devoted to the apostles' teaching. And God, in 2023, 
Help me be more devoted to the other people who gather with me every single week. God, help me to proclaim boldly to the world around me that the church is essential for the work of Jesus in the world. It's not something to apologize for or be embarrassed about. Christ gave his life for the church. And so, Lord, this new year, among all the commitments I make, Lord, let me be resolved that the church is essential. Father, I pray for this new year, not that Liberty Heights would get bigger. Lord, that's your business. That, God, our convictions would be deeper. God, we have a deeper commitment to prayer. We'd have a deeper commitment to the teaching, a hunger for the teaching of God's word. And, Lord, in a culture of individualism and online relationships, God, let there be a deep conviction, a devotion to the fellowship called the church. Lord, thank you for the gift of each other. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. In this new year, Lord, I pray that you don't find us successful. I pray that you would find us faithful. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, because we can. Amen.